Before we get started, I have to uh, apologize because I am still fighting some sort of respiratory thing, and so <clears throat> I'm hoping, pray for me, that I'll be able to make it through without coughing a lot <laughs> into the mic. But um, yeah, I think I, I might even go see a doctor this week to find out if I <clears throat> what's going on in my lungs, but um, two weeks is quite a while. So, but <clears throat> uh, today we are continuing in our journey through the wild and mysterious book of Revelation. Uh, two weeks ago, we finished the first section in this book, which is a series of messages to seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. And now we're moving on from those messages into the vivid visions uh, that John received. And this, these are the parts of Revelation that people really struggle to interpret. And and for good reason. Uh, but before we get into these visions, I think something that can help us is if we keep in mind three things. Three things that will help us to understand and appreciate these visions as much as possible. And this will apply for not just today, but for the rest of the time that we're in this series. So, number one thing to remember. John's visions are often not meant to be understood as literal, physical representations of reality. John's visions are often not meant to be taken as literal, physical representations of reality. In the passage that we're about to look at, it says that John is taken up into heaven, and he has this vision of the throne of God. And for many of us reading this in the 21st century, we hear something like that, and we assume that what we're reading is what we would see if somebody took a video camera into heaven and recorded it and then played it back for us, back on earth. Uh, But I don't think that's quite the way we're supposed to understand John's visions. The visions that God gives John are full of symbols. For example, uh, when John first sees a vision of Jesus, he describes him as having a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now, does that mean that Jesus literally has a sword coming out of his mouth? Sounds kind of uncomfortable to me, right? Um, That is not a literal, physical description of reality. Now, that is a symbol that represents something that is very true about Jesus, which is that Jesus' word is the final judgment on things, okay? Uh, in those days, if the one who wielded the sword was the one with the authority. And so this is saying Jesus is the one with the authority, and specifically his word is what has the authority, right? So there is truth that is being revealed here, but it is being revealed through symbols. Here's another example. <clears throat> in a, <clears throat> a vision that we're going to look at next week, John says that he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain on the throne of God. And everybody agrees this lamb represents Jesus. Now, is Jesus literally a lamb? Well, no, right? That wouldn't make any sense. Uh, Jesus' Jesus's literal physical body is a human body. We know that because he took that on when he resurrected from the dead, right? So, This means that when we read Revelation, we shouldn't try to understand these visions too literally, okay? These visions reveal truth, but they reveal truth through 
symbols. Make sense? Okay. So this is not the same thing as a film reel from heaven. Second thing we need to keep in mind is that we need to be humble when trying to interpret the symbols in these visions. We've got to be humble. That's really important. Because, look, here's the deal. With some of these symbols, it is very clear what they mean. It's clear what the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth means. It's clear that the lamb represents Jesus. But with some of these symbols, even the people, the scholars who give their lives to trying to understand historical context and the writing of the time and all that stuff, they write big commentaries on all this, even some of them have to say, you know what, here's some possibilities, but we don't know for sure. And, you know, I think that it's possible that if we lived closer to the first century, we would have a better sense of what some of these, these the significance of some of these symbols um, but, but regardless, we just have to accept the fact that the clear significance of every symbol is not always going to be apparent to us, and we have to have humility when approaching the text. We can't be so dogmatic as to say, this jasper or carnelian represents exactly this thing, and we know that, and if you disagree, well, you know, you're not taking the word of God seriously. Okay, so we've got to be humble. And then that leads me to the third and final thing we need to keep in mind, which is we need to be careful not to miss the forest, for the trees. You guys know this expression? Don't miss the forest for the trees. What it means is if you focus too much on the details, you can fail to appreciate the big picture, right? In order to appreciate a view of a forest, you can't just be focused, focused on one tree, right? You have to take, take in the whole thing. And <clears throat> the same thing is true with Revelation, right? We can't just get fixated on a particular detail, maybe one that we don't understand, we have to try to appreciate the vision as a whole. You know, here's a picture of a, a beautiful sunset. Not really the greatest, highest resolution picture of it, but on my computer it looked nice. Um, now, in order to appreciate that image, you have to look at the whole thing, right? If you just took, like, one square centimeter of any part of it and looked at it, it wouldn't be that nice, right? It wouldn't be that interesting. Uh, you have to look at the whole thing. And with the visions in Revelation, I encourage us to feel the whole image that's being presented to us. Feel the, the whole image of the throne room of God that we're about to read, rather than getting fixated on every little detail. Let the whole picture stir you to awe and wonder and beauty. Then we can worry about the details, right? But start with the forest, not with the trees. Okay? All right. Everybody ready? Let's get into this. <clears throat> uh, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you uh, for these visions that you gave to John. Um, and we pray, Lord, that we would be moved and affected by them in a way that glorifies and honors you, Lord I pray that you give us insight as we read them. Uh, open our minds and our hearts to receive whatever it is that you want to tell us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. 
At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. <coughs> they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. <clears throat> the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. All right. Now, like I said, let's first appreciate the whole picture. We could get fixated on what's the meaning of jasper and carnelian and a rainbow like an emerald. What even is a rainbow like an emerald? <clears throat> but let's not do that, right? Let's feel the whole picture here, the whole sunset. And I think when we do that, we see two things very clearly. If, these, if you're taking notes, two things I encourage you to write down. Don't forget these. First, <coughs> God is the one who is truly in charge. God is the one who is truly in charge. This is a vision of a throne. Why is it a vision of a throne? Because it's telling us that there is someone who is more powerful and more glorious and more worthy of worship than any earthly king or emperor or celebrity or person. And, you know, this was something that the Christians in the first century church really needed to be reminded of. If you've been with us in this series, you know that when John was given this vision, he was living in the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire at the time, it, the emperor was this very proud man named Domitian. Uh, Domitian even insisted that his own wife refer to him as my lord and my god. And he believed that he himself was literally a god, and he expected the citizens of the Roman Empire to recognize him as a god, and they were supposed to perform certain rituals to celebrate him as a god. And if you did not do those rituals, then you could be in big trouble. In some places, your life or your livelihood could be at stake. And many Christians in those days faced persecution for refusing to participate in those rituals. And so the Christians needed to be reminded, Domitian is not really the one on the throne. Domitian is not really the one who holds the power. Domitian's glory pales in comparison to the true emperor, the true king. And John was given a peek behind the earthly curtain into the heavenly reality to see the truth, right? That God is really the one in charge. 
Now, I realize that our situation today as 21st century Christians in America, it is not the same as living in the Roman Empire in the first century. But we do still need to be reminded of what they were reminded of. You know, because sometimes when we observe the world, it can seem like God isn't really in charge. Right? Because often when we observe the world, we see evil people prospering, right? We see injustice, we see oppression. Sometimes we see people who have no regard at all for God coming into power and abusing that power. We see racism, we see genocide, we see trafficking, like what Mike talked about. And there's a, t- there's a temptation to think God can't really be in charge. God can't really be on the throne. But what this vision is telling us and was telling first century Christians who had the same temptation is contrary to appearances, God really is the one in charge. God really is on the throne. And he will be here long after all those unjust political leaders and traffickers are dead and buried. And and when the time is right, he will judge evil and he will set things right with the world. Now, he's very patient with humanity. He's very patient with us, and he allows human beings to make poor decisions, and often for us to experience consequences of those poor decisions, and for poor decisions of other people to ripple out and affect innocent bystanders. But ultimately, he is still the one in charge. He is patient with us, but one day he will set things right. He is on the throne, and no earthly power can compare to his power. Certainly not silly Domitian. So that's the first thing that we sense from the big picture of this vision. Here's the second thing. All of creation is meant to worship God. All of creation is meant to worship God. We see two groups in this vision, around the throne of God, expressing adoration and praise, right? There's the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And they all declare over and over and over again that God is holy and glorious and worthy of honor. Now, you might be wondering, who are the 24 elders? Who are these living creatures? Good questions, but let's shelve the details right now, okay? This vision is showing us that worshiping the one who is truly in charge, the one who is truly on the throne, is the appropriate thing to do. It is what the creation is meant for. The 24 elders say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. In other words, everything that exists exists because of God, and so the appropriate thing for everything that exists to do is to turn around and praise the one who's given that existence. Now, I bet many of us hear that, we hear this vision of worship, and we think, oh, that's beautiful. That's just, that stirs my heart, that's beautiful. But I also recognize that some of us might hear this vision and Even if we don't say it out loud, we get a little uncomfortable because we think, why would God want us to tell him over and over and over again how great he is? You know, if a human being wants other people to tell them over and over how great they are, we rightfully assume that that person is insecure and maybe in need of some therapy, right? 
And so some people hear this and they think, God seems self-absorbed and insecure, and I don't really know if I like this vision of this eternity of reassuring God of his greatness over and over and over again. Now, if that describes any of your thoughts, I want to encourage you to reconsider the way that you're viewing what's going on here. God is not insecure, and God doesn't need our reassurance of his greatness. I'd like us to notice throughout this vision, the one on the throne is silent, right? He's not asking anyone, um, do, do you think I'm glorious? Do you, do you think that I'm holy? Right? He's not saying that. He's not forcing or manipulating any of these elders or living creatures to bow down and worship. What is he doing? He's being. He's simply being. And as he is who he is, that evokes worship from all these creatures. What's happening here is not the kind of worship that occurs when some dictator says, salute me or I'll kill you, right? And it's not the kind of praise that results if someone says, I'm, I'm really feeling down. Could you give me some encouragement? That's not what's happening here at all. What's happening here is much more like what you experience when you experience something beautiful or awe-inspiring, you know, like a, a really great song or, or a profound movie or a breathtaking landscape, and you just can't help but say, wow, wow. The 24 elders and the living creatures are experiencing God, and they cannot help but say, wow, wow. See, when we experience something that we love, our natural response is to worship that thing. It's a very human thing to do because our natural response to something that we love is to celebrate it. It's to proclaim its greatness and often to share uh, that greatness with somebody else. You know, even with something as simple as food, right? If you eat something that's really, really good, it's kind of weird if you don't say, this is really, really good. And most of us, if there's enough to go around, will want to say to other people, hey, you've got to try this. You know, this is amazing. And, and we do that kind of thing because we have this natural compulsion to express the worth of what we appreciate. It's, it's kind of as if our joy is not complete unless we've shared it with somebody else. Um, I mean, that's part of the reason that social media works as well as it does, because we post things on social media, whether it's like videos that we like or thoughts that we like, and we're hoping that people will join us in the celebration of whatever we've put there, right? Because we want to celebrate something, and we want other people to celebrate it with us and give us a little thumbs up, or even better, a heart, right? And, and, and that is, in a sense, worship. It is ascribing worth to something and encouraging other people to celebrate that worth with us. That's in the word worship, right? It's worth-ship. And that's why this scene around the throne is, that, is so beautiful, right? It's not some sort of ugly scene of some insecure dictator trying to get reassurance. What this is is a free expression of worth-ship. 
right? The elders and the living creatures are so in love with and so in awe of the one who sits on the throne that they can't help but celebrate him day and night forever and ever and ever. Now, just to clarify something, uh, I don't think that this vision is telling us that heaven is just going to be this eternal church service of saying the same phrase over and over and over again, okay? I'm confident that there's going to be much more to the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God, than that. And I say that not just because I feel that way, but because I think scripture uh, clearly teaches that. This vision is not telling us that heaven is going to be that, but here's what this vision is telling us, and this is very important. It is telling us that God is so beautiful and so glorious and so good that when his people experience his glory, there is no end to how much they are going to want to celebrate him, right? There is no end to how much we will want to say, oh, he is awesome, he is good, he's beautiful. I mean, when, when we express praise for food or films or music in this life, that is just a faint, faint shadow of the kind of expression of appreciation and joy and celebration that we'll feel when we experience God in all his glory. The kind of worship that we're meant for, the kind of worship that Revelation shows us is celebration. That's what, that's what worship is all about. It's not boring. It's not forced. What it is, is it's the joy of appreciating something that is truly worthy of appreciation forever. Joy and appreciation and celebration for eternity. All right, so that's the big picture. That's the forest. So let's talk a little bit about the trees, okay? We can't cover all the details, but I do want to talk uh, about at least a few <coughs> of those details. So, first of all, generally speaking, if you're unsure of what a detail in one of these visions means, the best thing that you can assume is that it's a way of expressing the glory of God, and a way of expressing that in a way that first century people would appreciate and understand. You know, precious stones, uh, expanse of water, lightning, thunder, a rainbow. All of it is intended to fill your imagination with a sense of awe and beauty that helps you to feel the majesty and glory of God. Now, who are the 24 elders? I wish I could tell you that everybody agrees on that, but they don't. Now, many people will argue <clears throat> that the 24 elders are a symbol of all the people of God from both the Old and the New Testament. Because that, that number 24, they'll say that's two sets of 12. So 12 represent the people of God from the Old Testament, 12 from the New. Now, why would that be? Well, because there were 12 tribes of Israel and there were 12 apostles who preached the, the gospel and then people came to believe through them, right? So they say that this... This is a representation of all the people of God, Old and New Testament. And I think that's fairly compelling. Um, but again, nobody knows for sure. There are also people who argue that there seems to be, at, at points in the book of Revelation, a distinction that is made between the 24 elders and the saints. 
and the saints is definitely a word for the people of God. So if there's that distinction, some people will argue, well, the 24 elders can't actually be human beings. They must be some kind of angel, some part of God's heavenly counsel, uh, but not human beings. Like I said, we have to have humility. And uh, I don't think anybody knows 100% for certain. If you think you know, I'd be very curious to hear what you have to say. So I welcome you to send, send me your emails or talk to me after service. <coughs> but whoever they are, the main points of this passage remain intact either way, right? That God is really the one in charge and that he is worthy of worship from all creatures, whoever the 24 elders are. Now, what about the, the living creatures? Those guys are really weird, aren't they? Uh, <clears throat> well, this actually isn't the first time that creatures like this appear in the Bible. And the other two times that they appear are also in visions of God's throne. Uh, they both occur in the Old Testament. <clears throat> uh, one is in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, and there are some creatures described uh, in that passage that have some similarities with these creatures, and there they're called seraphim, which is definitely a class of angel. <coughs> and then the other uh, passage is Ezekiel chapter 1. You can look it up sometime uh, if you want to. That's a real uh, brain exploder. Um, but the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of God's throne, and like John, he sees some strange beings that he calls living creatures. So there seems to be a consistency to what people experience when they have a vision of God's throne. And it includes these strange creatures that appear to be uh, some kind of angel. Okay. Now, why do these mysterious creatures look like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle? Uh, that description bears some similarity with what Ezekiel saw. <coughs> Again, I regret to tell you that no one knows absolutely for sure. Um, some people say that this all goes back to revealing the glory of God because these four creatures kind of would have been seen as like the pinnacle of uh, God's creation. And here we see them worshiping the creator. So that's a possibility. But really, I mean, again, everything that I read seemed fairly speculative. There was nothing where I was like, oh, wow, that really makes a ton of sense. So again, if any of you have any ideas, I would love to hear them. And if you attend a small group, you can discuss it with each other. Uh, but there is one thing about the four living creatures that I think has clear significance, and I think there's something that we can learn from it that's very important, and that is their eyes. John says that these creatures are covered in eyes, right? Even under the wings. Ugh. Uh, why is that? Well, pretty much all commentators agree that what this represents is that these creatures are watchful, and vigilance, and that they see everything that happens in the creation. Which means they have a fuller awareness of reality than you or I or any human being, right? And what do they do with that full awareness? They worship. And here's why this is significant. Some people will say, how can you believe in a good and loving God and worship him when the world is so messed up? You know, aren't you aware of how much suffering and evil there is in the world? 
See, some people think that the more aware that you become of the way things are, the more likely you are to lose belief in God. And the only way that you can really maintain belief in God is to be ignorant, to be less educated or something like that. But what these living creatures remind us of is that awareness can and should lead to worship of the Creator. You know, these beings, they are aware of everything. They see all, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly in the world. And yet they know that worshiping God is the appropriate thing to do. You know, if any of us are here this morning and we feel reluctant to worship God, we need to realize the problem isn't that we know too much about the world. The problem is that we know too little. Right? We haven't seen the full picture. We've missed the forest for the trees. And the more that our eyes are open to the world, right? the more that our eyes are open to the wonder and the beauty of creation, the more that our eyes are open to the mystery of why is there something rather than nothing, right? the more that our eyes are open to the life and the teaching of the Jesus and the way that he has transformed lives and continues to transform lives, the more that we we have our eyes open to these things, to reality, the more that we recognize that there is a divine hand that has created us and that sustains us and loves us and wants to redeem us. And the more likely we will realize that we should celebrate and appreciate and worship that divine being. So if this morning our eyes are closed to those things, Let's pray that they would be opened. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do pray for any of us who might feel like we're just not compelled to worship, that might feel reluctant to do it, that might feel reluctant to celebrate you or to, to give over our lives to you, Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that we would be able to see things kind of the way that the living creatures see them, Lord. To see the whole picture and to see the evidence of your love and your goodness and your power. To see that you are at work to redeem everything and to rescue your creation. Lord, help us to remember when we're afraid that you really are the one that is in charge that you really are the one that sits on the throne and that you will one day set things right. We give you thanks and praise, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.